Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. This is a takeover episode from your regular fabulous host, Danny V., my name is Poppy G. I'm recording in Brisbane, or Mianjin, which is where I live. I am the author of two crime novels, Bay of Fires and Vanishing Falls. Both of these novels are set in Tasmania, which is where I grew up. Today, I am thrilled to be in conversation with my friend and best-selling author, Eleanor Limprecht. Hello, Eleanor. Hello, Poppy. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you today? I am coming to you um, from Gadigal and Bidjigal land in the Eora Nation um, in Maroubra in Sydney, New South Wales. Well, welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. Thank and you. this is a massive week for you because we're celebrating the publication of your fourth novel, historical, historical fiction novel, The Coast. So congratulations. Thank you. It literally came out on Tuesday. So how has this week been for you? Has it been exciting? Uh, yeah. Yes, it's been a busy week. I had a launch on Wednesday and um, and it's just been very busy. And I'm also marking student papers at the end of the semester. So it's all happening, but in a good way. Um, so, yeah, it's lovely to celebrate a book coming out um, with with you know, friends, family, readers, people around. It's really nice. It must be when you've worked on it for so long, sort of on your own, and then suddenly people are starting to read it. And I've seen some of the early reviews coming in and people are loving it. That must be extremely fulfilling. It is. It's it's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, it's angsty too, I won't lie. <laughs> um, but it's also, it's also um, I'm trying to to like remember to enjoy the good parts yeah I think that's really important to um focus on the good stuff and just try and roll with the stuff that makes you a bit nervous so I thought I would introduce us as friends to our listeners today so Eleanor and I met about 20 years ago on the Village Voice newspaper which was a newspaper in the suburbs of Sydney and we became friends immediately because we had we found, we discovered we had so many similarities. We both lived in Glebe. We both had builder boyfriends who we later married. Uh, We both loved journalism and loved working at the Village Voice. And then we both went on to do masters in creative writing. And in 2013, Eleanor and I both celebrated the launch of our debut novels. For Eleanor, it was What Was Left. And for me, it was Bay of Fires. So I feel like, 
we've had um, so much in common over the years and we've been such a good support to each other as friends and as writers. I feel very grateful to you, Eleanor, for your friendship. Either that, that, Poppy, I'm stalking you and I just have to do everything you do. (laughs) Well, I want to do everything you do because later in the interview I'm going to be looking at all the awards that you've won and that's what I'm, I want some of that magic to rub off on me. (laughs) So, Eleanor, you have published What Was Left? and Long Bay with Sleepers Publishing. And then you moved to Allen and Unwin and you published The Passengers and, and The Coast. Um, that's a phenomenal body of work. Um, the Coast, I have to say, is the most beautiful novel. I think it's your best novel yet. I absolutely loved it. And for people who haven't heard of The Coast, how would you describe it? So it's a novel about um, about a small leprosy hospital um, to the south of Sydney, very close to me in Maroubra at Little Bay. Um, and it's a novel about, about what um, is now called Hansen's disease, which was one then called leprosy. And it's a novel about um, the treatment of people with leprosy in Australia um, in the early 1900s. It's a novel about stigma and segregation and um, about about sort of um, pain and the absence of it, and also about how fear dictates how people treat people with disease at times. Um, but it also is a novel about some very particular characters. So it's about um, four specific characters. It's told from the point of view of, of four different characters. And, um, and two of them are related, a mother and a daughter. Um, and then we have the doctor, Dr. Will Stinger, and and we have Jack, who's also called Guy in the story. And he's a ULRA man from um, from Angledool in northern New South Wales, who ends up at the Lazaret as well. So yes, sorry, that's a kind of long answer. <laughs> um, no, that's but- a re- that's a very there is there's a lot going on in this novel, and I think that is a really Um, Great way to introduce it. Can you explain a little bit about leprosy? Um, I actually thought I knew a lot about leprosy, but after reading your novel, I realised that there were things that I had misunderstood about it. For example, it's, it's not as contagious as everyone thinks, is it? So can you just tell us what is leprosy and how do you get it? Yeah, so it's, um, it's a chronic infectious disease caused by a bacteria um, and it involves basically the misconception about it is that um, there are a few misconceptions, actually, that um, that it's highly contagious, which it is not highly contagious. It's far less contagious than other diseases like tuberculosis. Um, and it also the other big myth about it is that it makes your fingers and your toes fall off um, and it doesn't basically what happens is it it involves primarily the, the nerves um, and nerve injury leads to this loss of feeling, making you more vulnerable to um, injuring yourself repeatedly and infecting yourself as well. So because of this, um, because of this, basically, you might wear shoes which are far too small and injure your feet. You might burn your hands frequently. Um, and then also, eventually, bones become resorbed and, and fingers and toes can be shortened. So that is what made people think that fingers and toes fell off. So, 
Yes, it's about feeling and the the absence of it. Um, so it's very interesting in that way as well. Um, and it's about people looking really disfigured. Some 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 people with Hansen's disease do not look very disfigured, and other ones can look very disfigured. Um, so this is where some of that mythology around it comes from. And that that was a new word for me, the word resorbed. So is that when the bones actually like are they are they melting or disintegrating back into the body what yeah disintegrating essentially yes and then um, it absorbs them yeah 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 i think it's just a shortening of reabsorbed but yes. it it does the the word resorbed is used in the some of the medical texts that i read around it um yes and just quickly how did it come to australia and then how did it disappear um, so the first cases that came to Australia were in the 1850s. Um, and the first cases um, that came into the care of the New South Wales government and, and they basically various states, it was around this time, the 1870s. In New South Wales, there were, um, there were three Chinese immigrants who were isolated in huts at Little Bay under control of the government asylums department. This was before even the Coast Hospital, which was the hospital um, that was started at Little Bay, was started in 1881. So, and that was largely patients from the smallpox epidemic, but they did build the Lazarus there as well for the leprosy patients. Um, so, yes, the first patients um, in Australia who had it were um, were from overseas. It was brought here from overseas. It is. It is um, of its highest prevalence in Africa, India, China, and the Pacific Islands. It occurs mostly in tropics and, and subtropical places, but it became endemic in Australia, which um, which was very, which caused a lot of consternation from the um, from the sort of. Um, colonial government here they were very concerned that there were um basically they became concerned that white patients were getting leprosy and they would um they were studying that very closely and making kind of family trees of everyone who who had it because they wanted to figure out how it was passed from person to person there were a lot of um they they sort of we're guessing at various reasons, but it's, it is not um, genetically passed along. It, it's not hereditary. Um, and they were searching for ways to cure it, but it was not, um, there was no cure found until the 1940s. The cure was discovered in the United States at, at Carville, which is the leprosy hospital for the um, entire of the United States. And it was actually a, um, a tuberculosis drug, Promin, which was initially shown to eradicate this bacteria. Um, but now it's been followed by sort of a multiple drug solution. Um, and the last um, leprosy sort of leprosarium, um, which is another word for it, but the one that was closed in 1989, is Derby in Western Australia. That was the last one in Australia. Um, and it didn't close until 1989, which is fairly recently. Yeah, I can't I can't believe that. That's um that's incredible. 
it, it seemed like when you're reading your novel, when you see the fear in the people at the time, how scared people were of, of catching leprosy and the prejudice and the cruelty with which that they um, people in society treated the leprosy sufferers. Um, I, I feel like we've come a long way, but then, but then in, in many ways we haven't because I was thinking of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s and then I was again thinking again of, of COVID and there certainly are contemporary parallels to how society deals with contagion today as they did back then but just just going back a little bit can you talk a little bit about that type of prejudice and how you um, illuminated it in your novel because some of the most shocking scenes were that sort of mob mentality of people being awful to the leprosy sufferers. Can you um, describe those scenes when, when someone had leprosy? How did they move them from their home to the hospitals? Yes, so there was um, the Leprosy Act in 1890. That, there was one passed in New South Wales. Various states passed them right around that time, but they um, required compulsory notification detention and treatment of the lepers in New South Wales. Um, and basically that meant that they would um, they would be taken somewhere and, and locked up. They were taken, you know, nobody wanted to touch them. Everybody was terrified of them. And so they were put, um, for instance, if they were moved by train, they would be put in a boxcar under police guard. The boxcar might be burned when they got where they were. If they were put in a on a ship, they were put in um, they they built um, deck houses, just, you know, shoddy constructions and would put it on the deck of the ship. And um, again, the person would be imprisoned in there. And when they got where they were going, they would burn the entire thing. Um, I mean, there were so many cases like that. There was a case in the United States, which I mentioned in the novel um, of, of a Chinese patient named Mok Sen who was studying, he was a student in the United States at a university and he was found to um, have leprosy and he was put in a, in a boxcar of a train and um, basically pushed back and forth between two states. Neither of them wanted him under their responsibility until eventually he died. Um, and so there are all these sort of awful stories like this because of this fear, um, because of this fear and some of this fear comes from, um, from the way that, excuse me, leprosy is spoken about and written about in the Bible as well. Um, it, that, you know, lepers are pariahs essentially. Um, and, and some of it is just from, from not knowing that it's actually not a very contagious disease at all. The reason that the name of of the disease was changed in the 1950s to Hansen's disease was because of, of the associations with it, right? Um, and then also when you got, so when these patients got to where they were going, and interestingly in Australia, most, um, most leper colonies or, or lazarets were, um, most people with leprosy were put on islands. Um, so in that sense, the coast hospital, the lazarets there were quite unusual. Um, but when they were kept, when they were put into these <clears throat> places, they were, they were um, told to change their names so that their family wouldn't be, um, 
wouldn't be associated with them anymore so that their families wouldn't be shunned um, or ostracized back back home. And, you know, they had to go through other um, kind of terrible things like they would, you know, nobody would take their, their even just their bottles for returns, their glass bottles. Nobody would um, handle their mail. They they would put their mail through ovens to before they would send it out. Um, you know, if they if they gave someone money, the people would wash the money. There was all these kinds of fears which were just um, pretty um, ridiculous. And yet it reminds me as well of, of the AIDS epidemic in our lifetimes and remembering those those myths about, you know, can you get it from a toilet seat or from touching people and that sort of thing. And the fear of, of something that isn't known, the fear of something that is um, that people aren't educated about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I can re- even remember my own parents who were educated people fearing I can remember specific things that they told us that were inaccurate about how you might catch AIDS, but they just didn't know at the time. Um, but when you were writing it, you you started writing in 2018, so you couldn't possibly have known how the world was about to be affected with all the COVID lockdowns. And yet the, the contemporary parallels are so strong between your historical novel and what, what's been happening lately. Um, I suppose, I imagine you were, you were probably well into several drafts of the novel when that started playing out. Did it affect the novel or did you sort of did, did it have any um, impact on the novel and the way those themes of isolation and the impact of government decisions on ordinary people um, did that have did that um, have any what was happening in real, real life have any um, effect on your writing? Yes, I think that it did um, because of that and because I, I was sort of working on the novel while we were in COVID lockdown, while we were in isolation, I had this new insight into what, um, you know, what just what it would be like and and how important it is um, to have human contact and touch and how important it is to kind of go out in the world and and see see things and how much you long for them when you when you can't have them um i also just the the kind of fear and the and the blaming you know people calling it the china virus in the beginning um you know this ridiculous kind of blaming of other cultures blaming you know the racism associated with it um it was all just in some ways it felt uncanny you know it felt like we just history just repeating it itself in that sense I mean the thing about leprosy was never an epidemic um at all but I also write in the novel about about the influenza epidemic which um which happened in like at the end of world war one um 1919 I think in Australia and and that absolutely kind of you know they were wearing masks and people you know movie theaters and schools were shut down and I'm writing about it in the novel as well and and thinking about the way that um that history does absolutely repeat itself um so that that was really interesting it wasn't planned at all obviously but um it certainly gave some depth to my 
to the way that I thought about those themes and probably clarified them a little bit for me as well. I think also, um, I think that to me, one of the things about about the coast and was that these patients were actually in this incredibly beautiful place. Little Bay, um, to anyone who's ever been there, is, is just the most beautiful cove, you know, the most beautiful small beach and very peaceful. And, and for these patients, you know, they had their own beach, the, the sort of um, north side of the beach there was called the Leper Beach. They had their own boat, they had their own piano and, and little library. And when you're isolated from the outside world, the kind of way that you rely on the natural environment for, for um, some sort of sense of, of, of peace and of, um, of beauty, I think is, is even different. And I realized that during the pandemic as well, I just became so much more connected to the environment around me because there was nothing else. <laughs> Because Little Bay is not far from your house, is it? No, no, it's not far at all. Um, you know, it's it's less than 10 kilometres. From- so would you walk down there and did you take inspiration from being? On I definitely place? went down there um, a lot while I was doing research and I sat around in the sort of, I mean, now it's quite developed um, and there's none of the Lazarets exist or remain. There's a small wall that was part of the men's Lazaret. But I definitely sat in, that's the only part that remains, and the slip rails on the beach from the boat. Um, but I definitely went and, and just sat there and, and you know, even just the, the sandstone rocks and the way that the, the, um, what you see looking out to the ocean from there. Um, and, and the same sort of flora and fauna is around there generally than was around there at the time. Um, and you can actually... Go, you can walk along through the golf course um, to the south and walk to the cemetery, which is still there. And that's a very um, haunting and kind of, um, yeah, evocative place. A lot of the gravestones are crumbling and falling apart, but um, it's definitely the one that I've written about in the novel. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that that comes across. You've got a beautiful way of describing the landscape. And, I, I, yeah, I'm not surprised that you, I can imagine you sitting on the beach making notes and thinking um, about the beautiful area there. There and, and Peel Island is the other place where the novel is set. And Peel Island is an island in Moreton Bay off the coast of Brisbane. That is also a stunning area. However... The lazaret there um, was not as attractive. Can you describe the difference between those two lazarets, the difference between the lazaret hospital, the coast in Sydney and Peel Island quarantine station um, up in Brisbane? Yes, yeah, so Peel Island, I was really lucky um, to get to go out there and and um, it wasn't open to the public when I went, but I was taken around by Queensland Park and Wildlife Rangers. Um, so that was extraordinary. It is, um, so Peel Island was where for a while all leprosy patients in Queensland were sent. Um, 
and it had it did not have a trained doctor um, or a trained nursing service um, for a very long time. It had a doctor who came out once a month by boat if if the you know if the weather wasn't too rough. Um, it was basically the patients were, were left to their own devices, except for a few attendants. Um, there were cottages for the, um, for the white patients, which were quite, um, quite nice cottages. And then there was really basically um, corrugated iron sheds, like tiny little huts with nothing like except a door cut in them and a dirt floor and, you know, perhaps a window cut in them for the non-white patients. Um, it was, it was very segregated and it, um, they were kind of left there to die in some, you know, not everyone did and some people did get better and, and went off the island, but it, it sort of, um, to a lot of patients seemed as though they were being abandoned there. Um, in the cemetery, which still um, is there, they were given numbers and not names. Um, and so it's very dehumanizing. The whole thing was incredibly dehumanizing. Um, they were taken there out on a boat and and the um, they were basically, the leprosy patients were, were towed behind um, the boat on a little dinghy um, and you know the the people who worked on the island the attendants and so forth could be on the boat but the leprosy patients were towed behind in this dinghy um, so you know just the the um, dehumanization and the lack of the lack of treatment, the one thing about the coast is, is that it was a working hospital for, it was an infectious disease hospital and a very small number of the patients there were the leprosy patients. So um, they did have doctors and matrons and, and that sort of thing who were looking after the, the leprosy patients. Um, whereas in those, at those island um, leprosy colonies in Australia, they, they did not do a lot of looking after of the patients. No, well, I felt sorry for Jack because he's the Aboriginal man who gets taken to Peel Island and when he arrives, he's walking across the island and he sees the little cottages and they've got pretty gardens out the front and electric lights and he thinks it's not so bad and then the nurse says, that's not where you're staying and he gets taken to that shed with the dirt floor out the back. Um, I, yeah, I think... And then we had down at the coast, which is the other hospital, which has more resources. That's where Clea is with her daughter, Alice, and the good doctor, Dr. Will. Um, we've got four characters who you alternate the point of view of the story. They're very distinctive characters and they all, um, they're, they're, they're different to each other. They come across very strongly. How did you imagine those different voices? Did you? Did they come fully formed or do they emerge as you're writing? How does that work? Because it's quite a lot to juggle, which you do brilliantly, but it must have been tricky. Yeah, so I'll just say while we're, while we're mentioning Jack that um, he wasn't originally going to be part of the coast. I didn't plan um, to write his character. It was originally... I had the characters of Alice and Clea and Dr. Stenger, and I actually had several other characters as well, points of view, which I ended up cutting. Um, 
But I, it was when I went to Peel Island myself and I saw how the non-white patients were, with leprosy there were treated so differently. And I read more about um, the history of leprosy in Australia. And it is a story of segregation and it's a story of different levels of treatment depending on the color of your skin. So the history of it is so tied up with race um, that I felt as though I, I had to write about that in the story um, that I was writing because I was writing a leprosy story set in Australia. And so when I did decide to do that um, and, and do the research around it and the community consultation around it, um, yeah, so that was when, that was when um, Jack came to me his character <clears throat> um and it's interesting like I I often get little fragments um from historical records that make me want to write about a particular person and I had that with Alice and Clea because there was um there was a case of of three generations of one family who ended up in the coast Lazaret um so that's sort of based on on that three generations of one family. Um, and then, and Dr. Stenger, it was based on, on a doctor that was at the Coast Hospital who did, um, did write letters and, and say, like, we're not treating these patients, right? We, we shouldn't be isolating them. Isolation is not, um, is not, helping anyone and it's not keeping the disease from from being out in the community isolation um, of leprosy patients actually just um, encourages people not to report because they're terrified of being locked up for the rest of their lives um, very familiar <laughs> yes and so and so you know um yes yeah, so these characters came to me at, at various times um and and then it was kind of just sitting with them and and discovering their own voices outside of any historical records because they're all fictional characters at the end of the day um and they're all a product of of imagination and and also of of the places that i've been to to research them as well i think landscape always has um, influence on character and then also just knowing a lot about a particular historical time I think um, teaches you about characters as well mm. to me um, it, you know an example of that is that Clea was never um, taught how to read or write um, but her daughter was so that idea that you know you can have two generations one that's one that's literate and one that's illiterate and what that what that's like as well to have your child be able to do these things that that you can't do um another thing of the time to me that that was really interesting is that and I've written about this a little bit in Long Bay as well but that institutionalization um, if you were of, you know, the poor or working class and a woman institutionalization might mean the a kind of weird freedom from the sort of um, domestic servitude that you've been in your entire life. Um, because, for instance, for, for Clea, for the first time, she wasn't, um, you know, forced to 
be cooking, cleaning and, and looking after children. So yeah, those were all things that I was thinking about as I was writing it. And yeah, because Claire's life improved, didn't it? And suddenly they had at the coast Lazarette, they had good food and access to books and the piano and a beautiful beach, which was a far cry from what she was used to growing, living in the bush. Yes, and growing up in a pretty um, a pretty challenging situation. So it's interesting because as as horrible as institutionalization can be as well it's interesting that in some in some ways in some places for some people it might have um it might have been something else as well an opportunity to not um for women in those in those situations and that was certainly the case at Long Bay Women's Reformatory as well um which I wrote about with my second novel so yeah those were just all things I was thinking of <laughs> oh I love it I love seeing inside your mind and I'm trying to work out how you like I, I, I like you know I read an early draft and it changed a lot um between the the early draft that I read and then when and the the final published version so I love hearing how it um happened and how it evolved I have to say or not when you first told me that you were writing a Aboriginal man, Jack, I felt nervous for you. Um, there's, I think there's sort of an anxiety amongst writers about if you're writing a First Nations character and you're not a First Nations person that you, um, you feel anxious about, about getting it right to the point that I think sometimes writers will just not write a First Nations character um, because they're scared of um, not doing it properly not being accurate um and the, obviously the problem with that is then you you know you're not writing an honest account of Australia if you're leaving out people who are important to any story about Australia um so I wanted to ask you when as a white person when you're writing a First Nations character what were some of the things that you had to consider yes uh, it was certainly something that I thought a great deal about and that I I um you know worried about myself as well but you know luckily the Australia Council has some excellent um Australia Council for the Arts some excellent guidelines on on um you know writing Indigenous um content I certainly am not trying to write um cultural stories and and I absolutely wanted to make sure that I um that I also consulted with um community members because Jack is Uallare and I was incredibly lucky um to have Nardi Simpson who's an amazing author of Song of the Crocodile um, reading a draft of the manuscript, giving me her feedback. Um, another Uallare and Gamilare woman, um, Frances Peters Little, also read the manuscript. And I had, when I went to Angledore, um, I had, you know, a local elder, Auntie Brenda McBride, showing me around. And I just, I was conscious that, um, that you know, it's, it's um it is certainly something that I wanted to to tread carefully doing, 
But I also didn't want to leave that history out of the story as well. And so I just approached it as um, with as much care and um, and kind of, you know, as much care and and combination of of um, caution and empathy and and all of those things. But I also, you know, might I'm open to criticism about it too. If I got it wrong, I'm very willing to to own that, that would be completely on me. I also think that my position um, has always been as an outsider in Australia, I'm not from here. And I'm, you know, as an outsider, I think that any Australian story I'm telling is, is as an outsider too. So I know that I do that with all my fiction at this stage, pretty much. I'm, I'm certainly not um, writing about about my own story. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of people saying that, you know, you should write what you know, but that's also um, not what I write with historical fiction at all. I write what I, what I want to know. <laughs> what I want to learn about um, and what fascinates me. And absolutely um, this history of, of the way we treated leprosy patients in Australia fascinates me. It's funny because I've heard other authors being interviewed and sometimes people say, I write because I've got something to say. But then other authors will say, I write because I have a question that I want answered. Um, yeah, that's just um, a random comment. But yeah, yeah, I'm definitely in the question answered. Um, yeah. I'm absolutely in the question answered boat. Um, particularly with this story, I was fascinated by it, and I still am fascinated by it, and very passionate about it. And and I'm yeah, I just I I just couldn't get enough of of reading about this history and thinking about it and thinking about all the parallels with with the current day so yeah that was that's absolutely the boat I'm in <laughs> well I think Jack's one of my oh, he probably actually is my favorite character so I think you've done a beautiful job imagining him and um and you know early reviews have been very positive so I'm sure it um I'm sure people are going to love reading his story as well as the other characters' story. Now, Eleanor, you are very humble about your achievements as a writer, but I googled you, and um, <laughs> you, yeah, you, you come highly recommended. You have been shortlisted or won the Voss Literary Prize, multiple Varuna fellowships, the Australian Literary Society Gold Medal, the Blake Beckett Trust Scholarship from the Australian Society of Authors. And you have an upcoming writer in residency at the Catherine Susanna Pritchard Writers' Centre in Western Australia. You've published four books. They've always been extremely well-reviewed. You've had great sales. My question to you is, what does success mean to you? How do you define success for yourself? Um, how do I define? I think success to me is... Um, is keeping writing um, <laughs> and yes and and it, it's not um, 
It, it is absolutely lovely to have readers. I think that that's just a beautiful thing. I love having um, the opportunity to be edited. That is to me like just such a gift. I love that um, at my launch, I got to meet my audiobook narrator, um, who's just this absolutely gorgeous woman with this absolutely beautiful voice. Um, and she does just an incredible job with the audiobook. So all of that I love, but I don't measure it as, as success to me. Success is just that I'm always interested in, in the next thing, you know, like that I'm not sitting on my haunches and kind of, um, and Googling myself <laughs> that I'm, <laughs> That I'm, you know, that there's another project on the horizon and I have that little, those little goosebumps in my arm because I'm excited and interested in something. And there's no more interesting thing to me than like, a, you know, a new, a new thing that you can kind of follow into these little rabbit holes of research and, and read, you know, 50 books about and be fascinated by so yeah that that's to me is my is it that's when I know that that the writing thing's going going okay <laughs> yeah yeah that I that that makes oh, that resonates with me too and on that note what advice would you give to aspiring authors um I would say that um that sticking with it is really you know you have to be stubborn and you have to be stubborn and and um and not give up at the first rejection that you receive because um poppy and i can tell you that rejection is part of the game it's part of the business um and you just have to pick yourself up and and keep going and keep trying it's um, it can take some time to find the right people um, and the right publishers and the right, you know, people who um, who think that you have something that's worth saying. But if you feel like you do, then you just have to keep going with it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very good advice. And I feel like, sorry, I'm going to cough again. <coughs> Oh dear, um, not COVID. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, Poppy. I know I can't catch it over <laughs> an audio <laughs> recording. Don't make me laugh because it makes my throat scratchy. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. One moment. That's okay. Well, yes, Poppy and I have. We've, you know, you and I have have counselled each other through many a challenging. <laughs> situation as writers um we've always you know that can be that's my other advice is have have some good writer friends who you can call when everything feels really terrible and um and they'll talk you out of you know out of your hole that you're digging for yourself they'll, they'll talk you out of burning your manuscripts they might talk you out of burning your manuscript and, come back to it later. <laughs> and burning all the bridges and you know sending off hasty emails 
and um, they'll Reply talk to you about <laughs> Yes. So that's my other advice. Well, Eleanor, I've got a million more questions to ask you, but I will start to wrap up now because I'm just keeping an eye on the clock. Before we go, I need to ask you the Danny V famous question, which is a tricky question. Why do you write? Um, yes, it's a great question. Um, I write because I have always expressed myself better in um, in writing than I do in talking. I um, injured my hand recently. I was in a cast for a little while and I was finding it really hard to use dictation apps because I'm it's it comes from a different place for, for me. It doesn't come speaking it out loud was just incredibly strange. Um, and I I have always written my thoughts far more clearly than I speak them, even when I was a kid and my parents um upset me or I was in trouble and I would just write letters instead of um instead of trying to argue with them. So Yes, that's why I write. It's a better form. It's a better form of expression for me. That's a beautiful answer. Well, Eleanor, it has been a pleasure to talk with you on the Words and Nerds podcast today. I just wanted to um, acknowledge Danny V for all that she does to support writers, readers, and our beautiful book community. She is the glue that holds so many of us together. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm not crying. I'm trying to hold back a cough. <laughs> but she's I fabulous. Thinking of Danny, she's amazing. Yeah. And and it's just a wonderful podcast. So I feel really lucky to be on it. Um, so thank you so much, Danny V and Poppy G. And I love how your names rhyme, Danny. I know. I know. Well, hopefully, yeah, <laughs> it does it does rhyme. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for listening today. Please run out and buy a copy of The Coast by Eleanor Limprecht, published by Alan and Unwin. It's an amazing novel. And it's something I think that would have universal and ageless appeal. You could you could give it to your mum or your grandma or, or your boyfriend. It is one of those beautiful books that will appeal to everyone. So Maybe not your seven-year-old. <laughs> no, 18 plus. <laughs> Although my 15-year-old read it. She, she, she was she, she liked it. Yeah, she did. Uh, but thank you. I won't, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yes. Okay, I'll yes. change the age of 14, please. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Eleanor. And I will look forward to seeing you at Avid Reader in a couple of weeks when you come up to Brisbane. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you, Danny. And thanks, Words and Nerds. <laughs>